This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome everyone to Kremlin File. And today we have our special guest, Ina Sovsun. Hello, Ina. Hello. Hi. hi. Ina is a member of the Ukrainian parliament. So we're really, really, okay, honored to have yes. you here with us. Okay. And deputy head, and I hope I'm pronouncing this properly. Is it the Holos party? Exactly. That's right. And yes. I think in English, we say the voice party. Would you say voice? Yeah. Exactly. Okay. The first now in 2014 and 2016, uh, Ina was the first Deputy Minister of Education and Science, but currently a member of the Committee on Energy, Housing, and Utilities Services. Okay. Ina, let's begin with something a little more general. What is the situation now, okay, in Kyiv and around Kyiv? Well, just literally 10 minutes before we started recording this, we heard the news that the Ukrainian army has regain control over a town of Irpin, which is uh, northwest of the city, like literally 20 kilometers. We've been hearing some positive signs uh, from that uh, town for a couple of days, but now we got the final confirmation from the city mayor saying that uh, Irpin is fully under the control of the Ukrainian army. We are, of course, super happy about that. We realize the situation is still shaky, so, so the Russians try to, you know, to come back. But this is the first time we have actually said that we have regained control control of a single town around Kyiv. That is great relief to us all. It's still, uh, we still need to remember that Russians are still keeping control of Bucha and Hostomol, which is really close to Irpin. But that is, again, a very positive development, which gives us great hope, like truly. I'm I know. very relieved no, to... No, we're to, getting emotional. Uh, we're getting emotional. Ina, <laughs> we're there. <laughs> we're getting emotional. Yeah. But you have to realize that the Russians are still there. And uh, I was just double checking on that information before we started speaking, because I wanted to know for sure what the situation over there is. So you have to realize that the Russians keep on sending more troops from Belarus uh, all the time. They, they keep on doing that. That is why fighting for those uh, uh, towns is so complicated, because we do not have additional troops to send from anywhere else, but they do. They keep on sending the troops, and it's really close to the Belarusian border, so it's like 100 uh, kilometers or something. So they keep on sending troops there, and Ukrainian army is slowly trying to regain control. Of course, the difference is, and that is the major comment, uh, that uh, Ukrainian army is trying to make sure that we do not lose our soldiers. Russian army doesn't care about that, so they just send people basically there to die. Um, but we try to take care of our soldiers, and, and we own, that, way, that is why it takes uh, slowly for us to uh, regain control because we also try to make sure that we do not lose people in the battles. But uh, on the air, the city on the like on the sky is is uh, still as complicated as it used to be. I was just double checking uh, today. I can give you the times for the day uh, when Ukrainian arm, uh, when when we had the air raid alerts here in Kiev, uh, and that was uh, I think we were under air raid alerts. 
as we speak right now. Yeah, we are actually. Uh, but then we were having air raid alerts uh, during the whole night, basically at, at 12, then at 1, then uh, 1 from 3 to 5 something. Uh, so that means that people either have to stay in their basements or in their, uh, I don't know, shelters, or at least uh, that's what I do here with, with uh, my, my colleague who's staying with me, just at least go to the bathroom or to some other distant room so that does not have windows close to it. That is the least people have to deal with. So, so oh, actually, uh, no, I actually slept in the wardrobe this night oh my. just uh which is uh, which sounds ridiculous but that is uh the place where we don't have the windows so yeah, yeah i safer. chose that it's a, a little safer a little yeah, it safer is, it is safer. a little yeah. safer yeah but um yeah the air defense system in kiev seems to be working pretty well so they do not hit major goals. And like, let's say, Kharkiv, because over there, that is just terrible. But in Kiev, it seems to be working. And uh, they, they, from time, like, it's not 90%. Oh, it's not like 100%, but it's 90%. But sometimes they hit the Russian missile fired at Kiev. Uh, and even once it was hit by the air defense um, mechanisms, uh, the, the sheer weight of the missile itself is so heavy that when it has fallen on the ground simply, like 500 kilometers, it's still a lot of yeah. weight. It still destroys yeah. buildings and can kill people anyways. Yeah, so this is the situation in Kiev. I can talk a lot about yeah. that, so ask me additional questions. Yeah. I yeah. actually want to highlight something about what Ina said. And it's, I mean, uh, fascinating because now the world is seeing this, where with Ukrainian military, they will do everything to protect their own. If, God forbid, you know, one of theirs dies, they try to get the body, you know, to, to have a proper uh, memorial. Um, yeah. Americans, same thing. I mean, you've seen Americans in war zones and they will do everything to get, yeah. you know, even the dead soldier, yeah. uh, soldier's body back. And we are seeing, I mean, on top of everything, you know, that Ukraine is dealing with, we are seeing like over 10,000 Russian dead soldiers just being like thrown across Ukraine, left in ditches, left on the street, yeah. and no one's coming to pick them up. And I mean, besides even the fact of, you know, it's inhumane for sanitary reasons, it's a problem yeah. because you can have, you know, diseases develop. I mean, uh, what are you seeing with this? This is a big problem. Uh, when uh, Ukrainian army takes control over some uh, smaller villages, uh, we haven't regained, up until today, we haven't regained control over big towns, but until it been. But even in smaller villages, Ukrainian army constantly finds many uh, Russian soldiers just laying on the ground, and they are not even trying to, to take them. Uh, and sometimes they just leave uh, people who have been wounded on the on wow. the battlefield that they don't try to to take them back uh, the governor of uh, southern region of Mykolaiv which has been standing so hard against russians they, they did a great job over there uh, in terms of not letting russians get to odessa mm. Uh, they managed to 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 you know to make sure that this doesn't happen. Uh, so uh, the, the governor of that region actually recorded a video uh, saying that we have a huge ecological problem right now in Mykolaiv because of the bodies of the Russian soldiers just lying on the ground. Oh my God. And Russians, even during official negotiations, they when when Ukrainian side is telling them just come pick up your your uh, fallen soldiers, they say we don't care about that. <gasps> so we actually have a problem about like what do we do with those bodies? We don't have the facilities to keep them. Uh, like, we don't have the refrigerators or anything. Uh, on the other hand, like, just burning them would 
be Ron as well, which is laying them there, is, is Ron as well. So this is just them not respecting not just the lives of Ukrainians, they actually do not respect the lives of their own soldiers. And yeah, that's just crazy, yeah. show how inhumane this, yeah. this regime yeah. is. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, if they can't even, you know, collect their own, this is why we're seeing strikes against Ukrainian civilians. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's just uh, like I've said, like Russian regime does not care about life. They could mm-hmm. have, you know, uh, they're not worried about the body bags coming home. They don't even want to see the body bags. You know, I've, I've heard, uh, just, just shortly I will say this, I've heard from the Ukrainian military and that's just that I've heard several stories where they came to to great deal to make sure that they take away the borders of the Ukrainian soldiers because we have this very strong principle of no man left behind, right. even if he is dead. They they try to recover the body, and that is just the strongest principle in the Ukrainian army and the same in the American army or any other decent yeah. army in the world. That is just such a basic principle yeah. for us that even for us it is difficult to take. Even for us knowing how you know inhumane Russians are in general. That is just too much. Yeah. 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 This was something, remember, Olga, that Paul Eaton had said, right? Take care of the army and no, take care of the soldiers because they know they're fighting for the nation. This is no one of the basic, basic, right? What you were saying, Nina. Okay. Exactly the same. Yeah. And I actually brought this up because I remember like Western media sitting and carrying on, you know, oh, Putin doesn't want to see dead body bags. And I'm like, Putin doesn't doesn't care. care about body bags. He doesn't care if a few hundred thousand people die. This is not the mentality of that regime. Like they just don't care whether it's, you know, their citizens with COVID over a million have died. They don't care. They lie about it. They cover up. So, I mean, you know, and here then came news that they were sending crematories. Apparently they don't even have the logistics to operate the crematories. So they just like dispose of the bodies and that's it. Leave them there. I mean, it's, it's, it's horrific. Yeah. You know, we're hearing about um, civilians being forcefully depo- evacuated, uh, deported, not yeah, evacuated, deported. I apologize, deported. They're being ripped out of their homes, separated from families. We see children being left without parents from uh, Kherson, from Mariupol, um, and they're being pushed into filtration camps. The mayor of Mariupol first sounded the alarm um, about a week and a half ago when he said that there were like over a thousand who were being pushed in. Now we are hearing it's about 30,000 potentially that have been forcibly thrown into Russia into these filtration camps that sound like Soviet gulags. Can you tell us the latest and how hard is it to get information out of Mariupol right now? Uh, yeah, so the first time I heard about that, uh, I double-checked on the information because uh, you have to understand this. The mayor of Mariupol is actually a man with a very good reputation among Ukrainian mayors. I mean, like any other state, we would have different people. Some you can trust more, some you can sure, trust less. Sure. But the mayor of Mariupol has been uh, has had a very good reputation. I, I think he had some international experience and, he, and he's, in general, has like good reputation among, among Ukrainian mayors. Uh, but even when when he said that, I double-checked if there are other sources claiming the same because it just sounded like too bad to be true, even in this war that that we're in right now. Uh, but then we also heard the same uh, from the uh, Kiev, oh, sorry, Mariupol City Council. They were confirming this information. Mm-hmm. And then about three days after I've heard this from the Kiev City Mayor, I was uh, in a taxi with my assistant. And she said, you know, I just got a message from my friend. Uh, her family members, not her parents, but distant family members, called her 
or I think they called her parents, it's like that, and said that they are now on the border between Ukraine and Russia. They have been taken by the Russian army from Mariupol, and they are now being taken to Russia. They were given a telephone for one minute exactly to call someone uh, to say that whether they're being taken away. They were not told where exactly they would be sent to. They were not told what exactly they will be doing there or anything like that. They were just given a phone call on literally on the border. So they called uh, the, the the family uh, of this friend of my assistant. So so this is a, as as close a connection I, uh, that I can explain. So so that is when I realized that this is real. This is really happening. Mm -hmm. When I actually heard it uh, from from someone who has experienced it very directly. So apparently, what we learned later is this: that the Russian army uh, on the territories of the areas in Mariupol that they control, they're just driving on the car. Uh, with the loudspeakers uh, and telling people who have not had any internet connection, any mobile connection for weeks now, who do not understand what is happening in the rest of Ukraine. The last they have heard was that the Russian army is moving into Kiev. That was the last that they have probably heard mm -hmm. of. Uh, and then they just lost connection with the whole world. And in those loudspeakers, they're saying that we have taken control of all the south of Ukraine, including Odessa, which is just a blatant lie that we're yeah. never near Odessa at all. Uh, and uh, that is why it is better for you now to get into that bus and to, to be driven to safety. Uh, some of those people are being taken to those uh, unrecognized republic of Donetsk and Luhansk. Uh, that is what we have heard as well. Uh, some of those people are taken to Crimea, and then from Crimea they are taken to to the well to, to Russia. Uh, some of those people are driven directly to to Russia, like through you know through the border through the those uh, so-called republics. So apparently, uh, we now have heard several types of, of you know, uh, routes that uh, people are being taken to Russia on. But apparently, after that, they get to what they th themselves call the filtration camps. That is that the wording we have heard from several witnesses who managed to call or to give any, you know, yeah. any statements to to the Ukrainian side. Uh, that is the term that they're using: the filtration camps. Wow. As terrible as it is, and and from there. Uh, again, we have less evidence, but, but again, everything we have heard before has proven to be right. Mm -hmm. So I believe that is the truth as well, mm -hmm. uh, that they're being sent to distant areas in Russia uh, and being forced to sign contracts that they will stay there for, for two or three years and they will work for free, basically, or for oh my food, God. which is modern slavery. Yeah. And, and it's, yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah, it's like Stalin's gulags, exactly. And, and it's so scary that these are the people who are telling us about denazification when they've been the true Nazis of our times. And that is just, uh, yeah, that is scary. But then add to that, that we have also heard uh, information from the, the Ukrainian government that they have also taken, as of last week, we haven't heard the latest data, but as of last week, they have taken 2,389 children from Donetsk and Lugansk regions, just children, uh, apparently mainly from those towns and cities uh, which are close to those re republics where the, the fights are taking place right now. I think many of those are the children of people who have been killed. So you can imagine, it would be difficult to locate the grown-ups, yeah. but locating the children in Russia it's would be like, close to impossible. There's, yeah, it just—it's it's so scary. Oh, yeah, this is this is absolutely incredible. But what I—I I mean, I read something about one of the things that you had published about the Red Cross. What is going on with that? Like, shouldn't shouldn't there be some sort of international organization that is that is trying to help 
in this situation, it just seems absolutely bizarre. Like I don't, I don't have words for it. What? Well, the, the Red Cross has. Uh, I'll tell you this: Red Cross has been getting some very bad reactions uh, on what they're doing here in Ukraine, and we're actually asking now uh, people donating from abroad not to donate to the Red Cross because, uh, well, we are not. Let, let's put it this way, we're not very happy with what they're doing. So uh, apparently uh, what they, uh, well, first of all, here in Ukraine, in the con ter territories that we control, they very often refuse to go to the areas where it is not safe to go to, which I can, on the one hand, I can understand. But then if they refuse to go there to the people who are mostly in need, then I just suggest donate to the groups that are willing to go there. And there are many volunteer groups, local volunteer groups uh, that are willing to go to Kharkiv, to, to Chernihiv, to, uh, even to Mariupol. We, uh, going to Mariupol is just impossible right now just because the Russians do not allow for that. But at least those who are willing to go to like Chernihiv and Kharkiv. Because because the Red Cross is even refusing to go to those areas, so we're just asking donate to those groups that take. Uh, I know it's 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 a risk for them, but they're willing to do that. So please donate to those who are actually delivering the help to those who are mostly in need. But then there was information that the Red Cross uh, has um, uh, the director of the Red Cross has met with uh, Lavrov, uh, the the foreign minister of Russia, and they made a deal to protect the rights of the people on different sides, which. On the one hand, I can understand how it can sound like uh, them trying to help people. On the other hand, they need to be aware that Russian propaganda machine will use it to claim that there are people who are suffering on the both sides and look, there is the recognized international organization who is helping both sides. And also they will definitely use it as a way to say that they will uh, try to, um, you know, that there are Ukrainians who are trying to escape to Russia not being abducted by Russian soldiers under, you know, with guns pointed to their heads, but who are being taken to Russia and they just need help from the Red Cross. I understand it's an ethically, you know, dubious situation, but I think in this in this very situation, it's it just, uh, well, many of the things that they're doing are just wrong. Yeah, just, Let's put it this way. Wrong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because that will be used by Russian propaganda machine to do even worse. Yeah. And they're using that internally. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, no, I mean, it's bad enough people... So who, you have... Uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm saying, so you have, um, on one hand, Russian soldiers cleansing cities, yeah. sending, yeah. you know, people to gulags, basically, yeah. as making them sign contracts, and then you have the Red Cross, which is an international organization, both siding something yeah. that should not it be both-sided be. because these people should be inside their homes in their own cities and Russian soldiers should not be there. Yeah, exactly. They should go back across the border yeah, to exactly. Russia. That's it's incredible. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, but that's, uh, to me that sounds a little bit like we shall have help the Jews who are being taken to concentration yeah. camps in Germany. Yeah. We shall make sure that their road there is, is more comfortable than it would be. You know, I'm sorry, but that yeah, is just no, the way no. it sounds. Yeah. Yeah, or in Russia's case, in the Soviet yeah. Union, let's hope Stalin, who, yeah. you know, decided to manufacture uh, a famine, mm. Holodomor, to, yeah. you know, kill mass Ukrainians. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's... Yeah. it's you know, I, there's something I was... I've been reading a lot of different accounts of people who, you know, have escaped from Mariupol, have escaped from different cities. And I think a lot of people in the West don't understand what it means to actually, we use the word refugee, but it's so cold and it's so empty. Okay. Can you speak a little bit about this? Because I think it's important that people understand 
what it means, no, when to leave your city. I'll um, I'll give you a, a very personal comment. Uh, the night then we uh, that the war started at four uh, in the morning. Uh, when I heard the first explosions, the first thing I did, I called my ex-husband and I said that you have to take our son, we have a, a son together, uh, to the Western Ukraine. He said, I'm already on my way. And my son was at, the, at the, that night, he was staying with my parents in Kiev region because of the distance, uh, distant online learning and all, he was just staying there for a couple of days. So so my ex-husband took, uh, uh, so, so I called him and said, like, like you should t take Martin to to the Western Ukraine. He said, "I'm already on my way." Like like you, because we we made this deal before. Because I said I will have to stay in Kiev because I'm a member of parliament. So you will have to relocate him. And then I had to call my mom, and I called her and I said, "Mom, you have to get ready to get Martin ready, but also pack your bags, and you and Dad will have to leave as well." And mom said, like, is that for real? And I said, yes, of course. And I said, just just hurry up because I don't like I don't have time to talk to you. Just, just you know, because I needed to call, call some other people and so on. I just said, just just get your stuff into the car and just wait for 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 my ex husband to pick up uh, Martin and then just drive away. And then uh, I was uh, then I was calling some other people, making some other arrangements and so on. And then I noticed that I missed a, a message from my mom, and she texted me saying that, you know, is that for all forever? And that was such a desperate message. Just, just imagine, because, because at that time I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking like, okay, I have to go to the parliamentary session. I need to make sure that, you know, th many other things. But that message from my mom, like, you know, is that forever? Will I not come back to my home? That made it very real to me. That made it super real. And you have to realize that my dad did come back for a while, and then he he's now like traveling, like delivering help and and so on. But my dad did come back. My mom is still in the Western Ukraine with the family. And uh, so she wasn't able to come back home. And the area where they live is actually the one where the battles are taking place, literally. Uh, they have seen pictures of their house with their windows broken. And I texted my mom saying, like, how do you feel about that? And she said, well, it's kind of strange because, of course, I'm very sad. Uh, but on the other hand, I, I see other people's homes being just fully destroyed and fully burned to the ground. So, you know, windows we can fix as long as the, it keeps to be just the windows that are broken. But this question of my mom, like, is that forever? It's still like, it's still very, very real. And and I have to tell you this, when I was, because uh, I was not staying, like now I'm, I'm home, but uh, the first uh, uh, three weeks I was staying with uh, different friends in the city or around the city. Uh, just because uh, I live on the north of the city and that didn't feel very safe to be in. Uh, and even I was not sure if I would be able to go back home. And I was getting, but, but I was getting so many messages from people say, uh, abroad because I, I lived in Sweden, I lived in the US and, and, and I just know many people abroad. And they were all saying to me like, you know, you should come to stay with us. Like it would be safe. You come with your son, everything will be fine. And I had this very strong feeling inside me saying like, I don't want to be a refugee. I don't want to do that. I have my home here. I have my life here that I was building for years. I have my mortgage for God's sake, like, <laughs> which I'm unable to pay right now. But that is just, it is what it is. 
but this feeling like you might you might never be able to go back home you might be like like the last time i was uh, i came home like two weeks ago i came to grab some of my stuff and i was thinking like i need to take the stuff that would be enough for me in case my house burns down like what will mm-hmm. i need so i actually packed some packed some stuff like for the summer like some shorts yeah. and t-shirts in case I'm never able to come back. Just, just imagine having this feeling like yeah. you have to pack your life in a suit, in, in yeah. a bag, yeah. and that might be all that you are left with. But but for me, I'm again, I'm back home right now, which I'm very happy about. I have my books, I have my stuff. But but many people in Mariupol, they're living like with nothing, literally with nothing. They're happy to stay alive, actually. And in Mariupol, there was this story that, that uh, okay, I'll try to tell it without crying. I felt typically when I tell this, but there was a story, it's completely real, of a woman who came, uh, we, we have read it from some of the volunteers who met the woman. She's a teacher. She came from Mariupol with four kids. And one was her own. Another kid was um, the kid of her sister. And her sister, one of the days, just went to look for water. And, and never came back. So we assume that she's dead or abducted. The third child was the child of uh, her neighbors who have been killed in, a, uh, in, I don't know, under some circumstances, uh, which we didn't know about. So she had those three kids. She heard about the evacuation bus and she just grabs those three kids, uh, some of the stuff as much as she could carry, you know, one woman with three kids, like she cannot take too much. And then she was running on the street with those three kids and she saw a child sitting on the street uh, next to his dead parents, just sitting on the street, uh, holding the hand of, of, of his mom. And, and she grabbed the child and his backpack, assuming that the child will have uh, some documents with him in that backpack, which turned out to be true. So, so we at least can know the name of the kid. And then she grabbed that fourth child as well. Uh, and that is as real as it gets. Just, just try. I, I like when I heard this story. I was trying to imagine my own son sitting next to, you know, his dead parents, afraid in a city which is constantly bombarded, not having any food, water, or anything. And you have to realize there are many more, hundreds of children like this still in Mariupol who have not been saved by a random stranger. This is as terrible as it gets. This is this is like Hitler type of terrible. This is this is terrifying. What they, particularly in Mariupol, that is the worst. Like in Mariupol over there. Yeah, I'm. I'm. It, it, this was important for you to talk about because we use very we were you we use words that have like war crimes, you know, but it's not. We don't understand unless people sit and ponder and read and you no know, try to understand what it means to lose your home, to not have a history. No, in a certain way where you go somewhere and you have no one, right? You have other people that are there with you. But this was extremely, extremely important because we don't have words for this kind of thing. There's nothing that can capture. No, the words are empty. Words are just empty. So I thank you that you, you talked about this because I think it was an important, an important no point. Uh... This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. No, yeah, it brings a humanitarian because, you know, unfortunately, like Stalin said, you know, when it's one case, people pay attention. When it be- goes into numbers, people just, it becomes exactly. a statistic. And I mean, the higher you see this, it's like, oh, this yeah. amount of people have been yeah. killed or this amount of homes have been hit. Each person has a, a history, a family, they, you know, something. Each home, there's something. So, I mean, it definitely, you know, it's good to bring, to show the, the like, individual cases well, yeah, of life being, people, you know, people, destroyed. You know, people, people. And I guess you yeah. know, also with your, with your work, because, you know, being the parliament is, you know, the government, the Rada, is functioning, right? Like, what are the, what are the, and, and, you know, glory to Ukraine. I know, I know it's incredible, incredible. Ina, can you tell us a little bit about what exactly, like day to day, what are you guys taking care of? I know that it may sound banal, but, you know, what, what does a wartime government, like, what are your, some of your priorities that you have every day, that kind of thing? So that really depends uh, on different members of parliament. So uh, I think that um, in general, uh, of course, we as the members of parliament, our main job should be creating legislation, right? Developing policies, debating policies, and so on and so forth. That doesn't matter that much right now. I mean, there are some policy issues, some legislative issues that need to be taken care of. Uh, like, I don't know, dramatic, what we did uh, two weeks ago, I think dramatically uh, decreased the taxes just because to make sure that at least some businesses are still functioning. I mean, that that's, you know, as, as much as we can do. And then there are some decisions about like war crimes and all that need to be taken. So there is this legislative tra- track that we are still doing. Uh, but it's not as big part of our everyday job as it used to be just a month ago, a month and a half ago. Because right now people found different ways of, of doing our well mission, which is to represent the people. So there are members of parliament, a group of us, who are mainly um, working internationally. So we are explaining to the world what is happening. So me talking to you is part of that job of representing my people as well. Right. Okay. I'm not doing legislative work, but I'm speaking on behalf of Ukrainian people and explaining what is happening here. We are talking to the diplomats. We are talking to to different members of parliament in other countries and so on and so forth. So, so there is this international front that we are doing a lot on. Second, there is uh, the work in terms of helping the military. That is the part that I'm also doing partially. Um, so the military in Ukraine, of course, we were not prepared for the war that we have right now, in militarily including, right? We do not have as much weapon as Russia did. We were not planning for a whole-scale war. So, of course, we do need more help, and we, need, we are trying to do the work of ensuring that our uh, you know, soldiers have uh, like protective gear, that they have uh, or sometimes just very random things, like, like, like right now I'm looking for a pickup car, like a big, big Jeep, for some of the regiments, they need it because those cars are very much in need. They are, I think that that all the, the those cars that have been, well, in Ukraine in general, have already been put to, to use by the military, but they need more. So we're just doing our best to, you know, to bring those cars from abroad to find whoever can have that and so on and so forth. Uh, so there is the, the work of helping the military directly. Uh, many MPs are involved in, in uh, humanitarian aid and relief work. 
So uh, particularly members of parliament, uh, because in Ukraine, we do have a different system than, uh, than for instance, the U.S. have. In the United States, you have uh, sing every single congressman representing a specific constituency. In Ukraine, it's it's a mixed system. So there are half of members of, of parliament, including myself, who have been elected on the party lists. So people just vote for the political party, and then there is a list. But then there are half of MPs who are representing specific constituencies. So particularly those who represent in specific constituencies, for instance, those from the Western Ukraine, they collect the humanitarian aid and then they get in touch with MPs from Eastern Ukraine or Southern Ukraine. And then they say like, okay, what are the major needs and how do we bring that help to, to you? So, so that is like, like many MPs are doing that specifically, you know, so those connections that we have, regardless of the political party, by the way, that doesn't matter anymore. But regardless of the political party, that they're involved in this humanitarian aid and relief. And then there is, of course, a smaller uh, group of members of parliament, but those that we are extremely proud of, uh, who are directly fighting in the war. Uh, like, like my best friend in the parliament um, uh, from our political party, Roman Kostenko, uh, he is uh, back to war. He's been fighting for seven years uh, in Donbass before he uh, became a member of parliament. He is now back fighting in Mykolaiv, and I'm sure He's one of the major reasons why the Russians didn't ma manage to capture Mikolaev. Uh, he's, he's a very good soldier. Like he was with the special forces before, and, and he's uh, yeah, he's doing amazing work, which we cannot talk a lot about. But yeah, uh, yeah. trust me, he's okay. doing a great job. Yeah. Okay, now let's take a break and talk about our partner, Athletic Greens. Okay, I really have to tell you, I love this stuff. Okay, and I take it. Every single morning, I've been doing that for about a month. One delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, mm -hmm. and you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. Put a scoop in. One and done. Shake it up. It really tastes fantastic. And then I'm go, go, go. I, I, I mean, I'm feeling great, yeah. and I'm sleeping better, too. Another thing I learned about uh, Athletic mm. Greens that I really liked was that for every purchase, they donate to organizations uh, to help get a lot of nutritious food to kids, you know, including like the program No oh, Kids wow. Hungry that's in the States. That I did not so know. So to make it easy, nice. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immuno-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. And all you have to do is visit Athletic Greens, that's all together, athleticgreens.com slash Kremlin file. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash Kremlin file to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance for you. Ina, shortly after Russia launched their assault on Ukraine, we saw, you know, almost immediately, they started seizing nuclear plants. We saw a few weeks ago they um, hit uh, the Kharkiv nuclear facility, which is a training facility. And then we saw again yesterday they renewed fire on this uh, Kharkiv nuclear facility. How dangerous is it? To both to Ukrainians and to Europeans, because I monitor Russian news all day. And I mean, I can tell you, starting several weeks ago, they were laying the groundwork with Kharkiv facility in particular, that Ukrainians have rigged it and are preparing a nuclear uh, local attack. 
How dangerous is that to both Ukrainians and to Europeans? Because, I mean, and are you seeing signs of Europeans doing anything to secure these facilities or anything at all? Uh, of course, it is extremely dangerous. I'll tell you this. This was probably uh, because they captured Chernobyl uh, nuclear power station the very first day of the war. When we were still in shock that this is actually happening, uh, you know, because you wake up at 4.30 in the morning or 4 in the morning, and then by, I think, 1 o'clock in the lunch, uh, in the afternoon, they're already there. And it feels like, they, well, first of all, you have to realize it, it is happening so fast that you are thinking like, okay, they will be in Kiev by evening. That is the first thing you, care, you think. Then you realize that they have actually captured a nuclear facility, like very soon. They have taken control over it. Uh, people who were working there—it's not—it's not a functioning nuclear power station, but it's of course it's a power station that the whole world knows about, and there are there is yeah. a lot of nuclear waste there, right? So it needs to be managed properly because if it is not managed properly, then you can understand that that it can blow up and and you know leaks and everything can start happening. Uh, so so they captured uh, the personnel there. About 300 people, I think, who were working at that time. They were not allowing for people in Chernobyl to leave during um, almost four weeks. Wow. So people, can you imagine just working there under, you know, Russian yeah. guns? But at least, but but still, people had to take care of the facility yeah. for their own safety, for the safety of Ukraine, for the safety of the whole Europe. To be honest, yeah. uh, I think about four weeks after, of 24 days, if I'm not mistaken, after they they captured it, they allowed for the rotation of the personnel. So some people left and some people came instead. I, I truly believe that the people who agreed to go in on rotation are the true heroes for the whole world, not just for us, because they voluntarily agreed to go to, to do the territory controlled yeah, by, by the Russian. Yeah. Yeah. The Russian they, <laughs> then there were, um, I think it's down now, but, but for a couple of days there were fires in Chernobyl area in the forests, which is extremely dangerous because those forests are, of course, contaminated. And any fire over there needs to be put down immediately. And the Russians were not allowing for the firefighters to come and put the, the fire down. And that is why for uh, last week, I think, we had some very bad um, information about the air, air here in, uh, in Kiev mm -hmm. uh, because some of the wind was just blowing in our direction. And that's really not that far from here. So uh, that was, uh, I think the fire is down right, right now. Uh, but people are still there under Russian guns. And... Uh, uh, yeah, well, what can I say? It is yeah. uh, still extremely dangerous. But what is worse even is in situation in Zaporizhia nuclear power station. That is the biggest nuclear facility in whole Europe. It's a huge nuclear power station. They have taken control of it, uh, well, by the end of the first week, I think, of the war. And uh, they have captured the personnel there. They have captured the city, the, the town around this um, nuclear power station. Uh, there was some interruption of services, but not as big. A uh, couple of days after they captured this nuclear power station, some people from Rosatom, which is the Russian mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. nuclear energy authority. Oh, sorry. Uh, that says that, uh, yeah, we are safe to go. Oh, okay. <laughs> the, the, the air raid alert is off. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but um, so... Uh, so, so the people from Rosatom uh, came to that station and they said that from now on, you are part of Rosatom. 
which is just making no sense. Like even technically, uh, actually from day one of the war, we're not connected in terms of lines with, with Russians in terms of network. We, we Like there is no way for them to work for Russia, like technically. Uh, but that's just for you to realize that they are literally just grabbing the territory, just grabbing the, yeah. the facilities and all, just claiming them to be Russian. Um, and then the, uh, the second week of the war, they, they have been conducting some uh, strange activity close to the nuclear power station, like exploding some, uh, some stuff there for unknown reason. But as of now, it seems to be working like uninterruptedly under the mm. Russian control, however, but it is supplying electricity to the general network here in Ukraine. Again, I, it is still extremely dangerous, but I think yeah. this first uh, fear that we had, like the first hours when they captured Chernobyl, that that is like you're just freezing. You think like, okay, there is no way I can save myself from that. So I think that is uh, that is that fear is gone. But of course, the fact that they are bombarding this facility in Kharkiv, which is just a training center and a research institution, um, that is truly dangerous. And they they seem to be specifically targeting it. So it's mm. not like, like they just, you know, hit it accidentally. They seem to, to be targeting it specifically because they're trying to use this argument that uh, we are using or doing some, I don't know, uh, experiments uh, over there or conducting some research for creating chemical uh, oh. weapon or biological weapon or whatever. Like uh, as, a, as a former first deputy minister of education and science, I will tell you for sure, we never had this. Hmm. For maybe unfortunate reason of us not having enough enough money for that, but that is just just for that simple reason we were never conducting that kind of research. This is just a peaceful nuclear research, which any country that does have nuclear sure. facilities need to be conducting. Uh, and and Kharkiv is, is a big research and university center overall, mm -hmm. so of course they they do have it there. But I think that they um, they can create some sort of. Um, yeah, danger. There were some rumors the first weeks, uh, the first weeks, God, that sounds terrible, the first weeks of the war, that they might try to create a sort of accidental uh, attack, like something just blows up in one of the stations. Uh, we are not hearing that intelligence anymore. It doesn't mean it's not going to happen. But uh, yeah, the nuclear threat will not necessarily come from Putin, you know, launching a nuclear uh, missile into Ukraine or any other city in Europe for that matter. But it can start by them just blowing some stuff up in Zaporizhia nuclear power station or Chernobyl nuclear power station. That can be the case as well. So it is uh, dangerous and that is why what we are asking for the world is at least please help us uh, cover the sky uh, above those nuclear power stations and create a demilitarized zone around those nuclear power stations. At least that, so that they cannot at least drop the bomb into the nuclear power station. Yeah. yeah. That is the least yeah. that we're asking for. To, to follow up on that, over the weekend, Inform Napalm, which is a volunteer mm. uh, group, analytical group, which is excellent, and then the National Security Council of Ukraine um, said that they had obtained evidence that Russian uh, military were receiving antidotes for yeah. chemical weapons. Um, mm. uh, what is the latest on that? What are you seeing uh, on that? We, uh, we do hear that threat. We did hear that the Russian soldiers have been getting the antidotes, uh, which of course is scary. I mean, we realize that nuclear option might be a distant call, but chemical weapon, Putin has already used that. He has yeah. already used that. And, and so he has experience. 
that does not require uh, many people to agree upon that, because with nuclear threat, one of the arguments why we were thinking that it, it's a low possibility was because that would require action on many people to approve on that. But with chemical bombs or anything like that, that would require less consent, and, and like Putin can take this uh, call by himself. Um, so, of course, we are extremely concerned about that. I think that is a very real reason. And I do hope that Putin got the message sent by President Biden saying that in case uh, there is uh, something like that happening, there will be a tough response. On the other hand, I'm not overly optimistic because, uh, well, given the history of the Western reaction so far, I think Putin hmm. will still think that the West will keep on saying that they do not want to escalate, even if it will be a chemical attack. Because I'll be, uh, well, blunt here. What is the difference between the difference between 300 people dying in result of a chemical weapon and 300 people who died in uh, in uh, the theater in Mariupol after you know a bomb dropped on the on that theater? So uh, we are still like chemical weapon is is a big concern. We are very much concerned about that. We do hope that this will not happen. We do hope that we shall get some uh, protective gear and all for, for our soldiers primarily. That is a very real possibility, unfortunately. Okay. Yeah, and we know Putin, I mean, mm -hmm. has used it endless times and, uh, in <laughs> Syria with Assad. And I mean, there has been plenty of documentation mm -hmm. was basically his testing yeah. ground for it. Um, the Western media now, okay, this is this came out also last night, Zelensky. No, there was a big, big no, uh, uh, interview with him. But there's a lot of talk in the Western uh, media on potential Russia's potential plans of partitioning no, Ukraine into two parts. No. Uh, can you explain exactly what is the Ukrainian position on this? We need to know, know your position on this. And would... Okay, Ukraine's civil society ever allow, um, let's say, one inch of Ukrainian territory to go to Russia? So, um, partially as a response to that, I tweeted this morning, uh, this uh, which sounded to me like a rhetorical question, saying mm. that, well, for anyone asking me, because uh, I get that question a lot, like, maybe you should agree for, for Putin to take Crimea and Donbass, uh, and mm -hmm. then there will be peace. Well, my first question is, who can guarantee that he will stop there? Like, who's the, you know, the guarantee provider? Because I'm not hearing anyone who can assure me that no. whatever Putin promises, he will actually keep his word. But I, I asked this rhetorical question on Twitter, like, uh, before asking me that question, try giving me the name of, of your region, which you will give up if Putin mm -hmm. starts providing you. And I got some very weird response from, particularly in the U.S., where people are saying like, "Oh, we want to give up Florida, or we want to give up uh, some other state." I think that is. Uh, I hope that people are just using it as a joke uh, and as a sign yeah. of polarization in the in the American society. <laughs> but uh, people have to realize that giving up any piece of your territory is not bad just for Ukraine; it's bad for the international relations because yeah. that is basically defeating the basic principle of international relations, which is respect for sovereign territory of a single nation state. That, that, that cannot be happening, not just because it's bad for us, because then it will mean that there is no, no sacred uh, borders of any other country as well. You know, that is just defined the very basic principles that the whole world is built upon. Uh, but second, it's uh, also about uh, simply about people who are living there. Like giving up those territories, 
would mean that people over there would be living in, well, basically a prison because Russia is a big prison right now. Just giving up those people, particularly the children. I'm sorry, I'm always taking care of the children because children are not making a choice about where to live. They just have to live where their parents were born. And I want to make sure that the Ukrainian children are taken care of to an extent possible. So uh, this idea of, of let Putin have some piece of the land, just two arguments against that. First of all, where is the guarantee that he will stop there? Second, mm-hmm. like we do have people there. Uh, Crimean Tatars do not have any other motherland except for the Crimea. You know, not a single other place on earth that they can call, call home. Yeah. That is a whole nation uh, who, who claim that to be their home. The Russians have taken uh, that away from them. Um, and, and then and another bigger issue here that I need to mention as well is that there are indeed, uh, or there were up until February 24th, people in Ukraine who were rather supportive of the idea of being friendly with Russia. That has changed the very second they heard bombs exploding over their city. Yeah. Like I was born and raised in the city of Kharkiv. Now, I'm not living there for, for, for many years now, but of course I still have uh, uh, some family members, some, uh, some classmates uh, over there. And I got so many messages from them uh, the first weeks, particularly of the war, say in Russian, by the way, saying, you know, please just tell the world that we are a Ukrainian city and we don't want to be part of Russia. Even from people who were rather friendly towards Russia, they were all texting saying, like, we don't want to be in Russia. Please do not do not give yeah. up on us. Uh, you are also seeing people in Kherson, people in Melitopol, in other southern cities which have been captured by Russians in the first days of war. That people there are going to the streets to protest, to say that they don't want to be part of Russia. That is the level of courage I can't even imagine. Like, can you imagine your city is captured by Russians? You have yeah. Russian tanks on your squares and you go there to protest and to say that, oh, yeah, we don't want that yeah. to be Russia. And they're protesting in Russian language. You know, that is the yeah. most amazing thing. And those who are truly like the region which are uh, like which have been rather uh, friendly towards this idea of, uh, you know, uh, being friendly uh, to Russia. Right now, 98 percent of Ukrainians are saying that Russia is our enemy. Ninety eight. We have never, ever been as united as we are right now. And that is probably the only thing that Putin achieved over here. So this idea of partition in Ukraine, it just yeah. wouldn't work. It actually could have worked on February 23rd, but not after what, what people have seen Putin capable of doing. Like on February 24th, people who were friendly towards Russia uh, were staying, standing in line to sign up for territorial defense and military service to protect Ukraine. That is something, uh, yeah. like I can tell you for sure, uh, Again, I was raised and born in Kharkiv, but I'm from a Ukrainian-speaking family. I was not sure how Kharkiv will react, but now I know for sure that no matter what language uh, people there speak, they want to live in Ukraine. They don't want to live in Russia, like never, ever. So just just even asking this question of maybe you should give up part of your territory is just wrong. Just thinking about people who go there to protest against that in those regions. Yeah. No, I'm glad you clarified that. I'm hearing this in the Western press. This is the yeah. problem. So I'm really, really happy that you, you know, you brought this forward, like that you explained exactly what it is, because this is what we're trying also to explain to people and say, look, you must listen to Ukrainians. It's what they want, not 
know what some, I don't know, some minister someplace is saying this is what's going to happen. Or on television or... Yeah, or former military officials uh, sitting yeah, there exactly. and like, with a map. Exactly. I mean, what are you doing? I no, mean, exactly. This exactly. is not your country to worry about. Um, and to add and to finish this off, just to add, so in 2014, you know, Russia um, uh, invaded, annexed Crimea. And we have seen what happens when it's under Russian control. First of yep. all, Crimea turned into a military base. Second of all, we found out there were concentration camps being run inside of Crimea in Europe in mm. 20, you know, whatever, the past five, six years. And I mean, you know, if you want to give a comment on that, because this is what happens when Russia takes over territory and what happens to people that are not, you know, welcoming Russia with open arms. They end up in concentration camps that are being run now. So if yeah. you want to finish off with that. Yeah, that and, is true. And... It's uh, like you can see what they're doing to Crimea. You can see what they have done to those Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic. Mm -hmm. I, um, I have a friend uh, whose um, family members... Sorry. Uh, sorry. Just... Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, sorry, just hear lots of no, explosions. No problem. Uh, no problem. Just to wonder if that is. Uh, oh my yeah. god. Yeah, um, yeah. I was just checking if, if anything is happening because yeah. it was just too loud. But um, yeah, like, no, if you, uh, yeah. so, so I was telling this. So I have a friend whose um, parents um, had to go back to one of those republics. I will not give um, the name. Which, which one exactly? Is it Luhansk or Donetsk? But her, her parents came back there just because they, they couldn't afford moving. And then they had uh, the grandmother who was very sick and she old. was uh, tied mm. to her bed and old. And so, so like people were, were staying there for different reasons, not because they wanted to live in an so-called independent, you know, Luhansk or yeah. the People's Republic. Um, and, uh, and, and her parents were doctors. Uh, are doctors. And uh, when the COVID-19 uh, started, uh, she was so terrified for them because over there, they were not getting any help. So they were the doctors who had to take care of the patients, but they were not given any like protective gear. They were not given any medicines, mm -hmm. anything. They were not provided with the vaccines when those uh, appeared, uh, like nothing. It's, it's like, you know, a gray zone where nothing is happening. Just on the, this very basic level of just just providing for the people yeah. who are living there, people there, I just end up in this in this gray zone of nowhere, and that is what Putin is trying to create in in you know other parts of Ukraine, and that is why, specifically because we know what was happening in Donetsk, in Luhansk, in Crimea, in the last uh, eight years, that is why people in Kherson are going to the streets to protest yeah. because yeah. they know it so well, and they say like, okay, maybe we can be killed today. But I'm not living in, in, in Russia. We don't want that. We don't want to be living in the situation like in Crimea, which is like 60 kilometers from Kherson or even less, I think. So they know that very well from family members, from, you know, you know, they know yeah. what they're fighting for. And it's the fight of their life. Then that is why they're not uh, allowing for Russians to take control. That is why they didn't allow for Russians to, to call the so-called referendum like they did in, in other areas. Uh, just because they know the price for that would be too high. That would be yeah. just, you know, uh, giving up on your future. That is why they, they are willing to fight so much. Yeah. Okay, well, yeah. 
you know, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for bringing, you know, the humanitarian aspect Everything. to all of this and Everything. for filling us in on all the latest that is happening there. How are you personally uh, am, doing? Uh, How are you holding up? I think I'm okay. I think I'm better than I was the first uh, week because the first week of the war, you just it it's just difficult to understand that this is actually happening to you. Like I'm I'm not lying when I'm saying that every time I was waking up in the morning after like two or three hours of sleep, of course, I was thinking that maybe that was just a bad dream. I just need to wake up really hard and it will be all gone. You know, it was just, it's it's impossible to believe. So this surreal feeling is gone right now. I think we all understand that this is real, this is happening. And we all understand that, okay, what do we need to do to make this stop? To, yeah. to win and to go back to, yeah. to, to having a normal life, whatever that means anymore. Yeah. So I think now yeah. we are more focused on everyone just doing our job, whatever that job would be. Like right now, I need to find that Jeep. And that is my, my okay. job right now. And uh, well, maybe one of our listeners will, will be able to. Find yeah. Jeep. Yeah, well, if you have Let's a go. big Jeep, just send it over yeah. here. Just send the Jeeps. Yeah. Send the Jeeps. Ina, thank yeah. you so much. Please stay safe. Please come back. Please, yeah. uh, if there's anything you need from us, please. You need to get a message out even quickly for five minutes. Yeah. Please thank you so much. Hey, everybody, if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and please visit our website, kremlinfile.com. This is a Bunker Crew Media production hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monique Camara, with executive producers Marley Clements, Jack Bryan, Grant DeSimone, Ben, Brett, and Jordi Mycellus of Midas Media, with associate producers Ruby Frankel and Sarah Metz. Theme music by Oreste Camarra. Sound editing and mixing by Joy Ellett. Subscribe to Kremlin File wherever you listen to podcasts.